Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you like what you've been hearing, help us spread the word and tell a friend about Here and Now Anytime. Now here's the show. They lied to me and said, oh, it's okay, ma'am. We're going to bring him right back. He has to sign some papers. And he didn't come back for a whole year. Immigration authorities want to deport a man who has no criminal record to Haiti. His family is fighting to stay together in the U.S. It's Thursday, January 19th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, a father and husband fears for his family's future if he's deported back to Haiti. And... New research suggests some dinosaurs, including T-Rex, might have been smarter than previously thought. But first, the country hit its borrowing limit today, $31.4 trillion, and so begins a familiar fight in Congress over the so-called debt ceiling, as some House Republicans are threatening to force the country to default unless they get major spending cuts to programs including Social Security and Medicare. This has happened before. We have a number of our members who just don't believe uh, that they should ever vote to increase the debt ceiling. That's John Boehner, remember him, the Republican House Speaker in 2011. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis was covering Congress back then, as she does today, and she stopped in to talk to Scott Tong about what that fight might tell us about today's. Take us back to 2011. The U.S. had hit its debt ceiling. And then, as now, was the government, the Treasury Department, trying to move money around and buy some time? Well, I think it's important to remember the political context of 2011. This was right after the 2010 election in which the Tea Party wave had won in a pretty seismic wave, especially taking control of the House, and was Mm -hmm. in a really combative position towards the Obama administration, particularly on the issue of government spending. And there was a summer of political brinksmanship. Republicans were insistent that they would not provide the votes to raise the debt limit unless and until the Obama administration agreed to at least some commensurate spending cuts to get there because the country at the time was really uh, in this fiscal debate stemming from the fallout of the 2008 financial crisis. So uh, it was not, I don't want to say an unprecedented battle because there had certainly been some dust-ups over Mm -hmm. the debt limit before but it was the closest that the nation has come so far to a potential default. Now, for his part, President Obama at the time warned Congress, the Republican-led Congress, that if the U.S. could not keep on borrowing, it might not be able to to send out Social Security checks. He spoke on CBS. I cannot guarantee that those checks go out on August 3rd if we haven't resolved this issue, because there may simply not be the money in the coffers to do it. And that prompted this response from Republican Congressman Joe Walsh of Illinois. In this web video, he directly addressed the president. You know darn well that if August 2nd comes and goes, there's plenty of money to pay off our debt and cover our, all of our Social Security obligations. Okay, so, so brinksmanship. Uh, Sue, what happened next? Well, Social Security checks certainly did keep going out because the debt limit was ultimately raised, but it had consequences, right? Even brinksmanship around raising the debt limit can have an impact on the market. And that happened. It, there was uh, an upending of the stock market. There was the first ever uh, credit rate 
credit agency downgrade for the U.S. government, it took a toll. Uh, and I think that that's important to remember in this current fight is that even if mm -hmm. the debt ceiling is ultimately raised, if there is serious political brinksmanship coming right up to that deadline again, there could be more economic consequences. Yeah. And that uh, credit agency, Standard & Poor's, when it downgraded the U.S. Uh, rating, uh, that rating is still at that level, I believe. Um, now, we heard John Boehner at the start there. He faced a lot of pressure from his right flank. That same predicament now faces Kevin McCarthy. So what is similar and what is different about the dynamics today? Well, like in 2011, you have a new Republican majority in the House, Democrats in control of the Senate and the White House. So the politics, the power politics seem to echo 2011. This time, I think Democrats are even more dug in in rejecting any entrees to negotiate on the debt limit. I think part of that is the president and Senate Democrats led by Chuck Schumer think it's both better policy not to entertain the idea that the debt limit is a bargaining chip and also good politics. In these past fights, it's shown that the public thinks that the Republicans are being more reckless when they uh, try to link these two, the spending cuts and the debt limit. Uh, and the White House so far is saying the president's not interested. If, if they want to have conversations about spending cuts or uh, overhauling entitlement programs, those are conversations that need to happen irregardless of raising the debt limit, which, you know, as of right now, the real test is going to be in early summer when Congress will mm -hmm. have to act. Yeah, right, right. When Treasury can no longer move money around and it becomes a, uh, a real financial problem. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis, thank you again for joining us. You're welcome. Coming up, Criminal convictions can be grounds for deportation in some immigration cases. But even immigrants who are never convicted of any crimes can be taken from their families and kicked out of the country. After the break, Deepa Fernandez has the story of one man who's been fighting deportation for years, despite having no criminal record. Stick around. Every day, U.S. immigration policy looms large over the daily activities of real people. Fredly Charles is one of them. He's a father and husband living in Massachusetts. As a child, Charles arrived from Haiti on a valid visa. Soon after, he became a temporary permanent resident and attended high school in Brighton, Massachusetts. But as a young adult, Charles was arrested. Some charges were dropped and he was found not guilty on the only charge he faced. But he did not know his legal permanent residency had lapsed. Tangling with the criminal justice system put him into the crosshairs of federal immigration authorities who began pursuing his deportation. Soon, US immigration authorities could separate Charles from his wife and daughter. Charles would become one of over 20,000 Haitians the US government has deported since 2021. I recently spoke with Charles and his wife, Tasha. Their infant, Eliana, cooed away in the background as we talked. I started by asking Charles what he was doing when we called. I spend my day taking care of my daughter every day because my wife is at work and I have to be the one staying in the house to take care of her. And she has some pretty big medical needs, right? Yes, yeah, she was born with a sickness called cranial 
it's when you're born, you can't breathe through your nose and you need like a trach that can help you with a ventilator. Could you put her in daycare or leave her with somebody else so say you could go out to work as well? Um, we can because um, you have to be trained to like take care of her. Like me and my wife, we have to go to certain classes to get her back home. If you're not used to like the sickness that she have, or if you're not used to like the situation she's in, it's gonna be pretty tough. Mm. Tasha, I want to bring you into the conversation. Um, this is your first child with your husband, Fredley. Yeah. How has it been for both of you having a child? whose needs are so great? Honestly, it's been a tough time. Like, you know, I've wanted a baby for so long and then finally being blessed with my husband to have one. And she came out the way she did with her condition. She was in the hospital for six months. Me and my husband going back and forth hospital every day, every day to be with our child. It's definitely been stressful. And what would it mean for your family, Tasha, if Fredley was to be deported? A big loss because he is the one, when I'm not home, it, like our baby is with him. Like nobody in our family knows how to care for my daughter. So for him to be taken away from us, mm. he's, he's the one that went through these trainings with me. So I feel I would need him in the picture than to try and replace him with somebody else. You may be wondering how Charles and his family got into this desperate situation. In his teens, his temporary green card expired. Charles told us his family tried to get it renewed. Yet despite his mother and siblings receiving their documents, his never arrived. No explanation as to why. Over the years, he's also tried other measures to get legal status, like applying for Temporary Protected Status, also known as TPS, which allows people from countries like Haiti to live and work in the US after a natural disaster. It's been an expensive process with little to show for it. Then, in 2018, he was arrested. Here's his lawyer, Ira Alcalé, explaining what happened next. As a younger person, Fredley had a charge of trespassing and carrying a firearm. Because the firearm was not a real working one, the charges were actually withdrawn by the prosecutor. Connected to that same charge was a misdemeanor trespassing charge. Fredley and a couple of other kids were accused of being in a vacant building. Fredley's lawyer brought that to trial and Fredley was acquitted because there was actually no evidence that he had done that. So not only has Fredley never been convicted of a crime anywhere, but since his younger days, he has, of course, not been charged with one either. Despite having no criminal record, immigration authorities still pushed for Charles's deportation. And in April of 2020, immigration authorities began the removal process. I was um, in a holding facility in Alexandria. I was waiting to be deported. Early in the morning, they came and called my um, call everybody else's name. Everybody had to go in the main um, in the lobby to um, get cuffed up and everything to go on the plane. My name was the first name that I called when um, my ICE officer ended up calling my name and I answered. He told me you was not on the flight, so you have to step to the side. Wow, how did that feel? It's like you dodged a bullet. 
Yeah, it felt it felt great because um I was praying so hard. I really don't have no family out there. All my family's here, my wife, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, everybody's here. So um me going out there and especially what's going on out there right now, I I don't know how it would have been. Yeah. That was during the early stages of COVID. So you ended up coming home at that point. You're still dealing with the threat of deportation. Tasha, how does that work? So pretty much they had him to be deported. They ended up taking him off the flight, ended up bringing him back to Boston and releasing him to me. And then now he, you know, he was on supervision and stuff like that. And now he has to do check-ins once a year with ICE. And every time, you know, he leaves the house, do you have a fear that he might be picked up by ICE? Every time, because the very first time ICE picked him up in January of 2019, we were literally walking out of his house to go to his criminal court date and ICE just came and yelled his name and they took him. They lied to me and said, oh, it's okay, ma'am. We're going to bring him right back. He has to sign some papers. And he didn't come back for a whole year. So every day, me and him going out this house with our child, it's hurtful to know that at any moment, we don't know what can happen. They can just come and get him at any time. Haiti is a really dangerous place right now due to gang activity and a very dysfunctional government yeah. and all the natural disasters that have happened. What do you think about him possibly going back? I don't think he would last long over there, to be honest, with the way that everything is going over there. And like, you know, information that we even receive from there is like, it's crazy. Like, why would he, why would you want to send anybody back over there? Especially he has no conviction, no felonies, no nothing. He's married. We have a baby, you know, ICE released him, no papers, no nothing. The case is still going on. They're still denying everything, even though we're giving them proof about our baby, her situation. And it's like, no one over there has a heart because my daughter like the bond that him and her have is like unbreakable right now. Some people in your position, Fredly, wouldn't want to speak out, wouldn't want to share their story because it might be risky for them to attract attention. Why are you talking with us? I'm talking to you guys because I feel like I don't have nothing to hide because um I came here legally. I did all my paperwork. I got everything I'm supposed to have. And now I have to fight for my life and I have to fight for my family's life because if I end up going over there, they're going to have to follow me in the condition my daughter is. It's not going to be good for her out there. No electricity. She got a, a lot of stuff going on that she needs power for and over there is no power. Our producer Gabrielle Healy has been working with me and we reached out to the government about this case. Gabby, what did they tell us? Yeah, so Charles's case touches several government bodies, but when we reached out, pretty much all of them said they were just doing their jobs. ICE was pretty clear that they're following a judge's order. It was a judge with the Executive Office of Immigration Review at the Department of Justice that said Charles should be deported. And ICE says its agents are just carrying that order out. We also reached out to ICE's Office of the Principal Legal Advisor, who would have some discretion in Charles's case to cancel the removal order, but we didn't hear back. And so what's next for Charles's case? 
Charles's case is on its last appeal. Most appeals are denied, and if his is, Charles can be deported at any time. This will happen even though his TPS application is still pending. The government hasn't responded to it since Charles applied last April. And when we asked, Citizenship and Immigration Services said processing times vary for each application. Thanks, Gabby. Now, the family and his lawyer hoped the government would use its discretion to terminate his deportation proceedings so he could legalize his status in the U.S. To date, they have refused to do so. Final words, Tasha. What would you say to the officials that are handling this case at ICE right now? What would you want them to know about your family? What is happening here? From the beginning, we never understood why my husband never got his green card and his dad, his brother, his sister did. Now his brother's an American citizen and my husband still has nothing. And to know we have our child with her condition and you guys are still willing to deport him makes no sense to me. That you guys are just willingly able to rip families apart like that and it wouldn't matter to you. That was Fredley Charles and his wife Tasha talking with us about the threat of his deportation. While the government decides what to do, Tasha and Fredley are taking care of Aliana. They're waiting to learn and living with the fear of what the future could hold for their family. Deepa and Gabby have more on Fredley Charles' case and lots more reporting on the immigration system at hereandnow.org. Coming up, how intelligent were dinosaurs? A new study calls theropods, the group that includes tyrannosauruses and velociraptors, the primates of their time. Scott's conversation with one of the study's authors after the break. You know in Jurassic Park how the T-Rex is a lumbering brute of a carnivore? Don't move. You can't see us if we don't move. Oh, think again. A new study in the Journal of Comparative Neurology looks at theropods. That's the group that includes the Velociraptor and the T-Rex. And it suggests the T-Rex was smarter than we thought. To talk about the brain behind the brawn, the lead author is on the line. Susanna Herculano Huzel is Associate Professor of Psychology and Biological Sciences at Vanderbilt University. Susanna, hello. Hey, Scott. Nice talking to you. Susanna, help us understand the main finding in this paper here and how you got there. I've been turning brains into soup for over 18 years now, and I've learned that there's a very good relationship between the size of a brain and how many neurons it has. Hmm. But you have to know what type of brain you're talking about. Different rules apply to brains of different types. So once you find, once I found that T-Rex had a, a, a brain that seemed to be made according very much to the same rules that apply to ostrich brains today, I could apply the same uh, equations to reports of the size of the brain of T-Rex and just solve the equation for how many neurons you would find in a giant ostrich brain like that, the size of a T-Rex brain. And that number amounts mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. two to three billion neurons, which is how, ma- how many you find in the telencephalon of a baboon. 
And that is a very capable primate, which makes T-Rex really, really scary indeed. Yeah, yeah. Now, you're right that T-Rexes may have been the primates of their time. So how do you think about that? What kind of behavior, potential social activity are we talking about? So with between two to three billion neurons in the telencephalon, um, just to put this into context, the only other animals out there that have this many neurons are monkeys and baboons, but also whales and large parrots like macaws. And we know that these are animals that can plan their actions, they can represent the minds and intentions of others, they can, uh, they can be deceiving, they can, be, they can do mischief, um, they can also use objects as tools, and they can learn by observation, they can learn by imitation, and they can very possibly uh, teach their behavior, so pass it on to other, um, to their to their, their, their kids, which means you have the possibility there of um, you have what it takes to build a culture. So does this suggest that the T-Rex may have been smarter than most other dinosaurs of its day? I, I think this absolutely suggests that T-Rex was the smartest dinosaur you had out there. Um, that is because it was the theropod with the largest brain, which translates into the largest number of telencephalic neurons. Um, and that is regardless of the size of the body. So people often um, underestimate how much it would be capable of doing under the assumption that this gigantic body would take a lot of the brain, would take a lot of neurons to run it. But mm. that's what my previous research showed, that the size of the body is actually irrelevant for a number of reasons. And the most important of them is that it actually takes a very, very small number of neurons to run the body. So, mm. yeah, T-Rex deserves much more respect than it usually gets. Th that brings me to uh, to my last question. I mean, this kind of the Rodney Dangerfield question. Where did this trope come from, this unfair stereotype of the T-Rex as this prehistoric biff? Um, because people used to think that uh, dinosaurs were cold-blooded reptiles, and as such, they must have had these tiny brains that didn't really um, amount to, to much. That has been changing over time with a number of uh, discoveries that showed that T-Rex and other theropods, so other of these bipedal carnivorous dinosaurs, they were actually fast the way that only a warm-blooded animal can be. Um, turns out they, uh, my, my own data confirm that they had a, a brain that of the size that you would expect for a warm-blooded bird. Uh, the numbers of neurons that you find in T-Rex are numbers that you will never, ever find in a reptile because their brains are made differently. Even if their brains, mm -hmm. uh, if you had a reptile with a brain of the same size as the T-Rex. Fascinating. That is Susanna Herculano-Huzel, Associate Professor of Psychology and Biological Sciences at Vanderbilt University. Professor, thanks so much for the time. My pleasure. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. 
Head to hereandnow.org for more stories, including the massive protests in France that are shutting down public transit and schools, how gun rights groups are suing Illinois over the state's new assault weapons ban, and Christmas tree eating goats. We're watching our goats enjoy these yummy, yummy Christmas trees. Walk them around a little bit, see which one they gravitate towards. So far, it looks like this tree right here is a favorite. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Gabrielle Healy, and Kalyani Saxena. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 